But one thing that I noticed while watching this the second time was the Kathy stick combat that was used against Boba looked, I dare say it's identical to what we see Boba utilizing in the Mandalorian when he shows up and he's fighting stormtroopers with his gaffy stick. Boba's probably going to spend a lot of time with the Tusken Raiders. So I'm thinking that while he's with these Tusken Raiders, they're probably going to teach him a lot about this hand-to-hand warrior style combat that will then come to serve him later on in his life. They're going to bring him back to the palace and squeeze that information. And I 100% just watching this episode, it's going to be the mayor. It was an immediate payoff from what Boba did by saving their lives. I got bad time. Yes? Maybe not. Okay, who wants to go first? Tribes of Tatooine, Chapter 2. Here we go. Hello there, everybody, and welcome to the Boys of Mandalore podcast, where we talk about all things Star Wars. My name is Ian, one of your hosts, and with me today we have Parker. How you doing, Parker? Doing great. We're a Mandalorian short. Mike is unable to join us. He is healing in the back to tank right now. So hopefully he will be back with us soon. That's how. And uh, we wish him a swift recovery. Yes, he has very important daimyo duties that he is attending to right now. So... It's just the two of us. Uh, today, we're going to continue our review and discussion on the latest installment of the Book of Boba Fett, Chapter 2, titled The Tribes of Tatooine, which released yesterday at the time of this recording. Yeah, can't wait to kick this off and just dive on in. So let's do it. That's more like it. The release of this episode is like has higher stakes on the present day of the story of like significantly of the length, the scope, the duration of this chapter seem more of like what the premiere should have been for me. Like it just umped the ante. Like I really enjoyed this episode. It was a good episode for sure. I did. I mean, I, yeah, I could see, I can understand some of the, I don't want to say like criticism, but maybe the lack that people found with the premiere, but I think this one delivered in spades. Well, I mean, going off, you know, the reviews of, uh, not just rotten tomatoes, because I think some rotten tomatoes people, I mean, they are reviewers. They do that for a living, but like the public opinion, not a whole lot of people know the, depth of star wars and what it can bring so i think they just didn't understand you know the the facets of star wars like we do so it was kind of slow for them they didn't know what to expect or or don't know much so maybe that's why i got such low ratings but i haven't seen the ratings for this one have you i have not but everything i've seen has been absolutely glowing seems like people who are diehard fans like us, who are casual Star Wars viewers, have loved it. Well, that's what I'm saying. I gave the last episode an 8, and I'm saying this one's a 10 off the gate for me. I enjoyed this one for sure. Yeah, there's so much to unpack. It felt like OG Star Wars. Very much. So, very much. Yeah. But we'll climb into it. Yeah, let's... Jump on into the speeder and get into Moss Espa. 
present day, the episode picks up right where we left off last episode. Uh, Fennec is bringing the assassin back to Boba's palace. And it was really cool because we got a very eerily familiar shot, like frame for frame of Luke showing up to Jabba's palace in Return of the Jedi. I noticed that was a pretty good parallel there. So props to the crew there. Um, Once they're at the palace, Fennec and Boba begin to interrogate this poor guy. I guess I shouldn't say poor guy, but he's very hesitant. He says, I'm not going to tell you anything. And even with a knife to his throat from one of the Gamorrean guards, you know, he still maintains silence. I'm not going to do anything. So 88 chimes in and says he's a member of the Night Wind. And uh, I don't know much on these assassins for hire. Did you dig up anything on that? No, it seems like they're basically a brand new group of mercenaries. Um, it actually, it gave me vibes the way that 88 and Fennec were talking about it. It reminded me of the golden company from game of Thrones, where it's like, they're very expensive sell swords, mm-hmm. but Fennec also chimes in and says, you know, their reputation's not great. They're basically just expensive assassins for, high. yeah, the, the name's expensive. So yeah, she chimes in and basically mutters that you're paying for the name. These guys are not what they're cracked out to be. And, He's ready to die with a knife, and as soon as, you know, even 88 is like, he won't talk. And she's like, well, maybe he'll talk with the Rancor, and pushes the button to the trap door, sending him down to the pits. And, I mean, if you are on Tatooine, I'm sure you know of Jabba's escapades and the Rancor that he feeds his prisoners to. Understandably, he freaks out. He's like, all right, I'll talk, I'll talk. (laughs) Well, here's He's just like when the door starts to open and he understands that he's going to get eaten first by Raincor, he shouts out, Mok Shais, the mayor of the town, is the one who hired him. And the door finally opens all the way and it is empty, but a rat. Indeed. I mean, that rat, you never know. It could be pretty vicious. Very vicious. Have you ever seen Muddy Python? A rabbit jacked all of them, bro. That's true. With this new intel, Boba and Fennec quickly make their way to the mayor's establishment i don't know mayor's office i guess the receptionist was a joy wasn't he yeah doesn't know boba's name i don't know if he was stalling or he was just you're you're a nobody i don't even know who you are even though he's one of the renowned bounty hunters of the galaxy and he's looking for a meeting but hey he's doing his job they're gonna barge right in Major Domo comes out and basically is like, hey, what are you guys doing here? Sorry we didn't see your parade come up. And Boba basically is just having none of it and, like you said, forces his way right in. Ignores him. And we get the reveal that you've called for a long time, where Mayor Mokshais is the Ithorian. I called it. called it that it was hired by them. The assassins were hired by the mayor. Well, maybe. I guess we've got to dig into this. So let's kind of set the scene here. So the Twi'lek, he's, uh, the mayor says, who who enters my domain? Basically unannounced and says, this is the, the new Dimi, the Daimyo Boba Fett. And he says, you do not know who I am. Then why did you send this man to assassinate me? And then he replies, he's a member of the Nightwind. And has his guard dome him right in the head with a blaster. Yeah, and he says they aren't allowed to operate outside of hut space right before his bodyguards just blast the dude. 
which is interesting because I mean, technically Java is dead. So does that no longer make Mos Espa hut space? I suppose. Unless he's just trying to cover his ass, trying to defuse the situation. Yeah. And, uh, he goes to, to pay Boba for his services of bringing in this personnel that's not supposed to be in this territory. And he says, I'm not a, I'm not a bounty hunter. And Mock replies, I've heard otherwise. I know you sit on the throne of your former employer. And he, Boba says, Bib Fortuna was not my employer. He's like, no, but Jabba was. And then Boba says, I'm going to take this money as your tribute that you should have brought to me before you're slacking. And the mayor then replies and says, Oh, I'll give you your tribute in the form of advice. And he hits Boba with this line running a family is more complicated than bounty hunting and tips him off that he should go and visit Garza's sanctuary, which is odd. Well, another line is he says, before you threaten me, you should, you should really know who sent the night wind. I have nothing to gain. I am at your service, essentially. And uh, the offer, I tr- the the tribute that I offer is is this information is that running a family is more comp- complicated than bounty hunting. So what's curious about his wording is is kind of like he has this odd confidence, like, and it reflects with the Domo Twilight because he, I think he just reflects like his master's posture absolutely and so it kind of rubs off him in that way when he came to visit him at boba's palace i'm trying to say boba's palace now because it's his not java's palace but that's kind of the same thing of what we're doing is that he's willing like i don't think he just i don't think he's afraid of boba i think he knows a lot more i think he's just the pawn of the huts he treats boba like a bounty hunter and he feels like he's got no pull in this power. There's a lot of a passive aggression going on between, you know, the mayor, even though he's got his little voice thing. But I can I can sense that and just the the dialogue that's given. Yeah. So I mean he's willing to tolerate Boba's like just delusions of grandeur, assuming that he's way over his head of where he is taking over Jabba's palace. Yeah, it's definitely a different ballgame taking over a major organization like Jabba the Hutt ran versus maybe some backwater small operation on a different planet. I mean, Jabba was like the big leagues. I mean, essentially, he's he's right because thus far, Boba has he needs to, to put his foot down. And that's what I said in the last episode. I'm like, I, we need to start seeing some movement because the power vacuum is coming and Holy crap, it's it's coming. So he does mention to go to Garza's sanctuary, and you will see what I speak of. Yeah, so when Boba and Fennec appear at the sanctuary, Garza is tipped off, and she just seems super, super off. Like, what is he doing here? I never trusted her in the first place. You were very I wise. Told you, I too. never trusted her in the first place. Something was off. It's true. So Boba comes up to her and he says, hey, the mayor told me I should come down here. And, you know, what's going on here? There should be something that I should know of. She responds, haven't you heard? And he looks toward Finnick. He's heard what? The twins have laid claim to their late cousin's bequest. And Boba replies, he's like, the twins are preoccupied with Hutta. They have no ambition to be on Tatooine. And then 
all of a sudden in the establishment it's you know super upbeat everybody's gambling having a good time there's music going everything just falls dead silent and you hear these distant drums start to sound and boba and fennec share a look and go outside where we see oh hold on i want to back this up just a tiny bit because i just want to talk about garza for just a tiny bit when he boba arrives at the sanctuary she greets him and then she's like hey can you wait at the bar why why get you a table it's not like boom get the hell out of the way here's your table like that respect in the original episode gone yeah that's a good point and i think the mayor and garza are working for the huts like and that's starting to they don't respect him sure they'll play his little game and give him some money and by the time where they can kind of settle things and see how things are going but i think the mayor and garza are rich and comfortable and the huts kind of provide that Mm -hmm. and under boba's rule it that shakes the foundation of the corrupt kind of lifestyle that they're living in and i think they feel that coming to an end with boba but they trust on the normalities of the huts and how things are run through Jabba, especially when they know that the twins are here locally and here to seize this territory. Yeah. So I don't know how long the twins have been in Tatooine. It could be very recent or it could, they could have been there the whole time without Boba's knowledge. Yeah, that's the interesting thing is I did a little bit of research today and we peg the events going on right now in this first part is 9 ABY. And they said that Jabba died. I can't recall if it was four or if it was, it was five years. Five years. Four ABY, so five years ago. So I mean that's a good chunk of time. So it's interesting. It seems to me like the twins would have just kind of been out doing their own thing. But I don't know why five years would have to pass for them to finally show up. Well, that's the thing is like we knew that. Okay, I'll I'll get into this. I'll kind of dig into that a little later. But let's kind of follow the scene here. So after that encounter with Garza, the drums start to roll. And like you said, he started to step outside with Finnick. Watch my back. And out pops the corner of the litter carrying the twin huts. And I lost my right here. It was so dope. I was not expecting the huts at all. I was expecting different factions of the crime syndicate. I was thinking like Red Dawn, like Kira, like I was thinking and that and that might still play a role and we can talk about that later, but I was not expecting the huts. No. I mean, that's an interesting thing about reading getting into the comics like I've done over the last few years is before that, I always just assumed it was Jabba, but there's this massive syndicate of huts. So it's really cool that they're bringing them in. And these guys, just like Jabba, they don't mess around. Like there's a good old fashioned stare down, showdown, war with words between both of them and Boba. They're bloodline. They're there to recapture what they think is theirs. And that's why I want to kind of, this is the first time that I actually see Finnick kind of shaken. You know, her badassery is just like when they turn the corner, she's like, oh, crap. Like, this is this is not good. And they weren't expecting that 
either. Even Boba was thinking they were on off planet. Yeah. Yeah. Literally minutes ago. Uh, but I mean, to his credit, he stands firm and says, no, it's crazy. This is my, I'm, I'm the daimyo here. So yeah, I, I'll set the scene. So the twins pull up and say, Boba, Hey, we need to s- discuss business. And Boba just says, Hey, this is my territory. And they respond, this is Jabba's territory. And they had the whole iPad thing pop up. And Bo was like, I don't care what your damn thing says. I am Daimyo here. And then as soon as he says that, a character emerges from the shadows. And this is where I lost my mind. Dude. We were on this call together and oh my gosh. And this was Black Chrysanthemum. Enters the scene. So, if you don't know this character, he's the black Wookiee who enters in. He is in the comics. And, Ian, you know more about the comics and this character than I do. So, I'll let you flesh this out. Okay. Yeah. So, Black Chrysanthemum. He's also known in the comics as Black K, which that's nice and easy. Yeah, that's nice and easy. Or Santan. Or Santi, as Dr. Afra calls him. Or BK. But I can't say BK without thinking of Burger King. Um, so a quick history on this ominous black chrysanthemum. He was captured from his home on Kashyyyk, um, and trained into a gladiator, which is cool because Boba drops a line where he says, you can throw as many gladiators at me as you want. Um, it was in this gladiator arena that he really kind of disgraced Kashyyyk and was basically disowned by the Wookiees for like how brutal he was. And he eventually becomes a very widely feared bounty hunter, rightly so, and ended up in the services of Jabba the Hutt. At 10 BBY. This was before the Battle of Yavin. Yes, indeed. So in technically his first appearance came in 2015's Darth Vader run. Uh, Issue number one, Vader actually contracts both BK and Boba Fett to hunt down targets for him. Then when you really get into BK's history is 2015's Star Wars comic run. In issue 15, uh, Jabba tasks him with hunting down Obi-Wan Kenobi. The reason he wants Obi-Wan hunted down is because there was a great drought on Tatooine. And Jabba, being the crime lord, the daimyo, sent around some of his thugs to levy a water tax on all the moisture farmers. Water tax. We talked about this last time. We did indeed. And when these thugs show up to the Lars homestead where little Luke is, Obi-Wan ambushes all of them and just like beats them senseless, which obviously pisses off Jabba. And so he hires this insane bounty hunter to go hunt Obi-Wan Kenobi down. And the battle itself in the comics is amazing, very brutal, very hard fought. And I just cross my fingers that we see this play out in the Kenobi show. He escapes from Kenobi. Yep. Not before he like goes to chuck a huge boulder and Obi-Wan flips over and slices the boulder and it actually cuts and gives uh Kersantin a gnarly scar, which you can see. You can see it. You can see it right where the hairline starts to part. It's on his left eye and it hits up above his to his temple and a little bit down on the bottom of his cheek. But it's there, so it's canon. This is so awesome that they took a character out of comics and put him on screen. Yeah. I can just hear Kathleen Kennedy. There is no material. There is no material to go off of. 
Ooh, that boils my blood. <laughs> well, now they're doing it. That's the nice here, thing. Here you go. There's exhibit A. And he looks awesome. Like, it's nice to see this Wookiee. And, and he looks exactly what he did in the comics. Like, they did such a good job. And the dude is giant. Yeah. He's very, very fearsome. And you can tell. Like, you may only see Boba's helmet, but you know he's shaking. And he's like, oh, shoot. Like, I got to. They got Black or Santin working for them. And it's interesting with their history. I mean, they worked together. So, I mean, in, even in the comics, I mean, they pulled them from the comics, right? And you told them that Boba and uh, Black Chrysanthemum was, was hired by Jabba. So do they know each other? Because it didn't feel like that meat. I mean, obviously, Boba knew that he was a gladiator and had some backstory on him. He knew who he was. So I was just curious if if Boba's like, hey, dude, what the heck? We used to work together and now here you are. Yeah. No, I believe they were just more acquaintances who worked together maybe once or twice. It's not really like on the level of Boba and Bosk where they had a history of, you know, many missions together. It seems like it was just maybe a couple items. But I mean, physically, he's going to dominate Boba if they come butting heads for sure. And one point that another podcast, shout out to Thank the Maker, if they ever hear this, they made the point... It's interesting that in this episode, we had a good, consistent, like Boa was walking through almost like a neighborhood of Trandoshans. Mm. And we see him at the table with a bunch of Trandoshans and who hunts Wookiees and hates, like there's a massive. Yeah, there's a, there's a blood feud between Trandoshans and Wookiees. They do not like a race war. That's why he had the that's why he had the pelt at the very beginning offering it as tribute. Yeah. What's his name? I forgot his name. Doc Strassi. Yep. Yes. So perhaps Boba knowing he has to deal with Chrysanthemum is like, hey, Trandoshans, wanna help me out? I need some help. I'm gonna get to that. So let's follow the scene. So when Boba says, Bring as many gladiators as you want and I'm not going to, I'm not going to fold. And the sister chimes in and she doesn't really talk to Boba straight up. Boba doesn't have the luxury apparently, but she's using her brother as a mouthpiece. And he says, you offended my sister and she thinks we should kill you. He's like, you're basically your sister is right. If you want this territory, you're going to have to kill me for it. And that's, he's got some balls to say that with huts, especially in front of everybody, he has humiliated the huts in front of everybody and is making a stand for this territory with what two Camorian guards and Finnick Shan. Yeah. Like, what else does he have? Like, we haven't seen anything else, and maybe the Tuscans. But basically, they said bloodshed is bad for business, and we'll deal with this matter another time. Sleep lightly. And they turn away. And the, the look that Black Chrysanthemum gives Boba after they leave, I'm like, oh, shit. Yeah, he could have killed Boba with just that look. He killed me with that look. It was a sexy Wookiee. <laughs> it's that scar for you, huh? Yeah. So after the twins litter turns the corner, they disappear. Fennec talks to Boba and she says, they're huts. You'd have to get permission to kill them. And Boba retorts saying, that's not settled yet. He he asks, "Is like, 
do you th- unless it's settled and she replies do you think it's settled and he's like no so that is a good question is just like we need to get permission to kill them so that's why i was just thinking are there bosses within bosses or what does that mean does he have to go to the other crime crime lords within the city and ask if he can do this action if it's going to harm their business or I mean, it kind of makes sense because we see in the trailers that he's bringing these crime bosses to the table, right? But now it kind of makes more sense that the huts are there. Is he's going to sell his rule to these other crime lords and seeing if they can help dispatch the huts with him. If they're going to come with him to fight this war. Because... It's already solidified. Boba said it. He's like, if you want this territory, you're going to have to kill me. The Huts are not going to back down. This is, they are the main antagonists right now. This is, this is Boba's greatest threat to his, his dream or his, his goals, his ambitions. So I wonder if he's going to bring the crime bosses to the table to pitch this idea. It certainly seems like it. And in order to prep for that. What's he going to do? He's going to go back to his back to tank. But see, that's the thing is like when I, when I told you this last time is that I did not see Garza or the mayor at the table. So it lets it leaves me to believe that they're on the side of the huts. And that's why I kind of get that indication. No, absolutely. Like if they haven't been on Mos Eisley or Mos Espa for five years, why all of a sudden would the mayor tip off Boba and say, Hey, I think you should go to this watering hole like literal minutes before the twins show up. They're totally in on it. It's just the, the huts being there personally brings just a whole different atmosphere to the table. I mean, you can see the people like the races, all different kinds of races that are like carrying the litter. That's the power that they have is that you see Nictos and Twi'leks and humans, and it shows the power of even privileged races of high status under the rule of the huts. It's extremely powerful. And I want everybody to grasp that. Yeah, definitely. I think they do a good job at elaborating that point in this chapter. And then, yeah, Boba takes another dip in his back to tank, hopefully building up his strength. But with the back to tank visits come these dreams, these flashbacks. We're right back to Boba's time with the Tusken Raiders, which I'm here for. I'm turning into a Tuscan Raider stan. I am too. Like I was turning into a big Tuscan Raider fan. So he uh, starts having this flashback and he's training with the female warrior Tuscan. And Ian, you were, you were right about kind of how this all played out is that he's starting to learn their culture and their fighting style with the stick and starting to become a sharper weapon for their cause and being a member of the tribe. It is, I confirmed that it is a female Tuscan warrior played by Joanna Bennett, who is a stunt woman. And she's, she's doing an outstanding job of just portraying the character through this costume. She's excellent. Yeah. I can't imagine how incredibly difficult it would be as an actor or an actress to give personality to a character who's always under wraps. Like, 
you literally see nothing. Well, you don't have emotion within the face, so you have to to give that emotion through your gesture and subtle nuances of how these Tuscan tribes behave. Yeah. No, and the training montage I think is tremendous because it shows how far Boba has come in his training with the gaffy stick, but it also shows like how far he still has to go because she keeps giving him pointers like, this is how you hold it. He's like, I'm holding it that way. And then she just ends up showing him two different ways. Like, no, you still have a lot to learn. Yeah, character development and progression. Ray Skywalker. <laughs> yeah, so as they're doing this, you can see the other Tuscans kind of raking through the sands for black melons is what they're called. Those water water pods is what we talked about last time. They're called black melons. But this creature pops out from the sands and they take a pop shot at it and get a, a successful kill. Anyways... We have an image coming from the heat waves of the sands of the Dune Sea, and it's moving quickly, and it makes noise, and all the Tuscans get ready to fight, and Boba's completely confused and taken off guard by this. And as soon as it gets closer, it, we can see that it's a freight train, and they all mount up to take cover, and the train blasts first and hits a bantha right in the chest. Yeah. They do a lot of damage on this Tusken Raider group. Like you said, there was at least one Bantha, maybe two. And I mean, that's their mode of transportation. But it also kills quite a few Tuscans, it looks like. And Boba's just kind of like caught in the crossfire. Like, what is going on? Right. And their behavior shows that this has happened many times. And it's going to happen again. So after this altercation... You see the Tuscans gather their dead and burn them, which was another indication of their civilized beings and care for their dead and have feelings and emotions, you know, further solidifying that these are sentient creatures. Yeah. And after the, or I guess during the funeral ceremony, Boba notices a group of speeder bikes go by and they're the same ones that we saw mugging that moisture farmer in chapter one. And just the look in Boba's eyes, he's like, I have an idea. Maybe these can be helpful for us. So he basically goes to the leader and says, I have a plan to stop this train. And I thought it was so cool that the Tuscan leader was like, you can't stop the long speeder. Like this thing is obviously a problem if it has a name, like the long speeder. Hmm. But Boba persists and he asks for permission to follow this group of bikers on the speeders. And he says, I'll take my weapons. Stick, rifle, be back by morning. Be back by morning, yes. And so he mounts up, goes out on a one-man show, and we cut to Boba arriving at freaking Tashi Station. The only time, I mean, obviously it was mentioned, you know, Luke. But I was going into Tashi Station to pick up some power converters. But it was seen in a deleted scene from A New Hope, which I hadn't seen until later after this episode but this deleted scene features luke skywalker his friend biggs if you remember and then two friends fixer and cammy and they are actually the two humans that we see inside tashi station in that deleted scene luke meets with them at the opening battle where vader's star destroyer overtakes leia's ship that whole kit and caboodle at the opening of a new hope 
which prompts Biggs to go in search of the rebellion to join the fight. He asks Luke if he wants to join him. And Luke says, you know, I have to stay for one more season. So, I mean, just the fact that they brought this in is fantastic. Yeah. And I think there was also a alternate story of, of Cammy that Luke was kind of, it was his love interest. And I think if he were to stay on Tatooine, he would have married her or at least attempted to because he had this relationship with her. But what's kind of crazy is that this has been with Luke gone and these guys still here and still being at Tashi station just shows like that connectivity of a, of a small town, like a farm, a farm life where everybody kind of knows everybody and the lifestyle just traps them in the spot. Like it did Aunt Beru and uncle Owen inside Tashi station. We see the biker game, and we learn that they are a band of Nikdos. They're really just taking what food and drink they want from patrons, the bartender. They're, you know, you can tell it's kind of their place and it's just the way it is. Just swipe whatever they want from patrons, including Luke's old friends. Until in comes this mysterious bald man with a gnarly, probably third degree sunburn and a white jumpsuit. <laughs> And then he just starts, like, beating people senseless. Yeah, jacks him and takes a drink from the bartender because he deserved it and goes outside and sees all five bikes and straps them together and brings them home. When he shows up, he's just like, he talks to the chief. He's like, this is a gift for you. And what's funny is he turns around and you see all the Tuscans taking it apart. Oh, oh, stop, 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 stop. I will teach you how to ride. I will teach you. This is how we will stop the train. And then we get another sweet training montage showing Boba teaching the raiders how to operate the speeders. Okay. This makes it go. This makes it stop. Go, stop, like a bantha. Yes? In that montage, we also see Boba continuing to receive more gaffy training from the Tuscan. I like to think of her as like a matriarch of sorts. Yeah. And then he's also teaching the little youngling that we saw in chapter one. You know, this is what you can do to help out the tribe. You know, you're going to use this mirror and relay a message. All in all, just a really cool part of the episode. Yeah, it's just a... Sh- sharing of knowledge between what he knows and what they know and collectively helping each other to take on this cause of bringing down this train that's causing them so much pain. Yeah. And eventually we get the return of the train. Only this time the Tuscan Raiders are very well prepared. Once they see it, they alert each other. Each group takes their own actions and the Tuscans who are responsible for shooting at the train. I mean, they're, they're pretty good sharpshooters because they end up taking out a few of the people that are just taking pot shots out of the window while the speeder group begin their own assault. But things start to like unravel in Boba's scene that some of the uh, losses that he's taken is distracting him. One of them got shot and he feels he was looking behind and is kind of taking blame for this idea, but it distracts him from what they're doing and he takes a shot on his speeder bike, therefore having him to get on the train. And uh, 
they run into trouble on the top starting getting blasted and they're kind of caught in the crossfire and that's when the warrior female tuscan has to step in and straight up rams freaking vin diesel <laughs> style fast and furious action right into the train and she she boards it and understands what needs to happen and starts taking out the opposition within the train. And this was kind of a fun scene because it was kind of comedic in a way, but it still shows that it wasn't intentional. She was just doing her job and kind of understanding what needed to be done. But I think it's in- it's important to note as they're fighting these people on the train, we find out that they are indeed pikes of the Pike Syndicate, who we have seen in Clone Wars. We saw them play a pretty big part in Solo. They're responsible for the sale of Spice, which is a drug in the Star Wars universe and comes from lots of different places, mostly like Kessel. Which are the labor for to get this Spice is all slaves. Yep. And when Boba shuts down the train and kind of, what's the word I'm looking for? interrogates them a little bit yeah is he knows that fact of of the slavery that takes place and he's not happy with it and so this is kind of showing him being a leader for these tuscans it was interesting to see that in this interrogation boba was basically taking center stage he was sitting on the crate he had the tuscans of the tribe around him and it really seemed in that moment to be very solidified that, you know, they view this man as a leader, even though he's not one of them. He has helped them. He's helped them take down this train that has caused them so much pain. And it's in this moment where we do learn that, you know, these pikes are carrying spice from Kessel as seen in solo. And they come back with, you know, we're just trying to protect our route. Yeah. We thought you were uncivilized raiders and we were just trying to protect our route. And Boba replies, these these sands are no longer here for you to pass freely. If you pass, the toll must be paid for these these people. The land is ancestral claim to these Tuscans. Any death from the passing of these freighters will be returned in tenfold. And basically gives them this ultimatum. Bring this back to your syndicate. Understand our terms and walk. And they're like, how do you expect us to get there? And he says, walk, we'll give you a black melon. But I think if you were the Pikes and you just got your freaking train taken down by Tuscan Raiders and this dude, and he's like, hey, if you kill these people, we'll pay it back tenfold. You're like, oh, this dude's not messing around. Like, we've seen what he can do with literally nothing. No, they have something. That's not all but spice on that cargo train. There's probably more tech than the Tuscans know what to do with, especially their numbers of the tribe. It showed that there were weapons. There was lots of water. I mean, the Pikes are very, very well off people, especially Mm -hmm. the syndicate. So I'm sure they got clothing, money, and then also just the cart and freight itself to provide possibly shelter to at least start an infrastructure. Yeah. Which would kind of be cool if they come back and they they you can see that those train cars are are used as structures and stuff like that. They just peeled away everything to to help build their tribe. Yeah, unfortunately, the Tuscans don't obtain the services of the uh, conductor droid because he just like straight up yeeted himself right on out of there. Yeet. Then we cut to nightfall, and there is a ceremony. 
And I'm going to let, I'm going to clear some space for you to lead us through this. Cause as much as I loved this scene and I, I know you've dug in a lot on this. Well, it was just so, so interesting to me because I'm getting last samurai vibes from the whole thing. And that's, if you have, if you don't know what the last samurai is, I'll just briefly, it's basically this, this warrior that got captured by the samurai and then they made him into one of them. So it was kind of just reflecting that story. But we learned that the time spent with the Tuscans is, is basically preparing him for a life that he's, he's choosing for himself in the present day. And when he does this for him, he shows a respect of the chief. And now he is within the ceremony and the chief starts to tell him about the Tuscan history and how they used to be the land before was, was flush full of ocean. It used to be a planet, not like, just like ours, like here on earth. But I mean, we won't go too far into this. Basically another faction littered the the land with, with weapons and just destroyed it and made it into glass. And then it turned into sands. And these Tuscans were buried underneath this, this shelter that they, they made from the bombardment of what happened. And then they, they arose and are the Tuscans and tribes that you see today. But the chief says, I have a gift for you and this will help you guide you. And he pops out a lizard and the, and Boba's kind of taken off at this. A lizard. Thank you. I will let it guide me. But the, the chief also mixes it with a little spice and poofs it in his face. And the lizard reacts and goes straight up his nose and Boba starts to have a hallucination and trip. I was fully expecting we were going to have like a little Pascal for <laughs> Boba's Rapunzel. But this is this is the trip. So when when he starts to enter into this trip, you see Boba start to wander the moonlit desert hallucinating with like his old armor kind of fading in and out like it on him while he's making his way and he stumbles across these two trees. One of them's bigger and the other one's smaller. And he places his hands on the big, big tree. And as he looks up, he sees the red eyes of Jawas within the darkness of the branches. The tree begins to wrap around him as he hallucinates that they are basically, they are, turning in and fading out like the tentacles of the Sarlacc that start to, and he starts to panic and starts to clamor for life. He sees his face and then it like cuts to, and he sees his, his own face, like his older self in the reflection of his father's helmet, Django fits. And it cuts to his younger self chasing after his father's ship slave one in the halls of Camino. And then he kind of stops because he can't go any further because there's bar windows stopping him from, from proceeding. And then it come, cuts back to the branches, grabbing him, and he snaps it, freeing himself. And then you see this like emergent of water. You see this, this breaking of water like a wave breaking. As he comes down from this trip, the, the lizard starts to guide him back to the camp. And that's where I think this, this kind of guide is, 
helps him go back and forth from this, this trip, but he's still holding on to one of those branches. And so the way I'm trying to articulate what they're trying to show is that I think the tree is a representation of a family tree. And I think he's literally like, he's literally a clone from another man, Django Fett, and he has never had an identity of his own. Django raised Boba to carry the family business and legacy of from birth. Boba was destined to become a bounty hunter like his father. And in turn, Boba became the best bounty hunter in the galaxy. When he was thrown into the Sarlacc pit and robbed by the Jawas, like his armor by the Jawas, like his father was one of the best bounty hunters before him and he and he died, which was like a huge factor and moment in Boba's life. And I think Boba feels trapped and suffocated by the identity that was, was basically chosen for him. If that makes sense. I think that's the beauty of this series is Boba is such a complex individual because he's literally a clone of his father. He also has maybe 3 million of himself as like brothers that a lot of them are probably still out there in the clones. That would be just like a total mind trip in and of itself. So when he's stripped of his armor, it's just like, who is Boba Fett outside the armor of being a clone? Like he's just a clone of Django Fett. Like he has no identity other than, other than that armor. And I think the time with the Tuscans is is making is forging his his identity and when he finally retrieves the armor he has a new image and reflection of this new identity forged for himself and he's taking a piece of that tuscan culture and you can see he's still wearing those robes underneath that armor as his garb and basically the the transition of his new identity yeah once he makes back to the camp we see that continuation really of the ceremony where they clothe him in Tuscan garb in those black robes that like you said he goes on to wear underneath his armor once he gets that back in Mandalorian where he's reborn again essentially yeah and I think that this plays a lot into the boba that we see in Mandalorian because when he showed up in Mandalorian it was a completely different character than we had grown up with Boba Fett you know what I mean? Hmm. And I think that this is doing a really good job at humanizing this person who in just the original trilogy was just this stone cold killer. Right. And then he just kind of, it was just always living in his father's shadow. Absolutely. Trying to carry on the family business. And the one thing that is interesting to me is it, he almost seems to continue to carry that. Even though he has this character development, he's still hunting after Din in search of his armor. Well, with the time with the time gone between his time and the Tuscans, I think he's just waiting. Like he doesn't need the armor until he's figuring out what exactly he needs to do. And I mean it's still a part of him. Like he's not he's not gonna fully like throw the baby out with the bathwater. He's evolving and it just shows the progression and that's maybe why he repainted and then also keeps the garb of the Tuscans. But in that 
in that trip where he sees his his head's reflection within the helmet of Django, it's just like Django was a badass and he was one of the greatest bounty hunters just like his father before him. But look at where it got Django. His head was in the helmet without his body. So he's going to be end up killed just like his father if he continues down this road. Yeah, this is your future. Now, he's here to forge a life for himself and also forging his destiny that is a respectful and an honorable life to live. And that's why I think he's gaining this power to maybe help others because you can kind of see that with the Tuscans and he wants to do that on a grander scale. Absolutely. But it cuts to where they wrap him in the garb and then he gets to forge his own gaffy stick. And it's really cool to, to watch this happen where he has this, this relationship with the blacksmith and the mentorship and kind of showing him how, how to create this iconic weapon. Yeah, it was fascinating to watch because I had always been under the assumption that they were just full metal. Mm -hmm. Like I thought Boba was just, here's this training, like a sparring sword, basically. But we learn, nope, here's the wood. We carve it out of wood and then it's almost like they wrap it in metal. Yeah, it has a bottom section where it it transitions into a metal spike. And then they just harden that thing Mm -hmm. in, in the flames and... It was it was really, really cool to see that. Right. And so as soon as he's done, he gets the approval of the warrior and the blacksmith and presents it to the chief. And does a kinsei with, with the warrior and everybody starts to chime in. And I really love this scene. I like watched it nine times. <laughs> it literally gave me goosebumps. Yeah, because he's now solidified as a member of the tribe. He is one of them. And it's very cool because Tamara Morrison being from New Zealand, being of Maori descent. He gets to do his haka. Yeah. It's like, it has to be related to that. And it's so cool. And I feel like it makes perfect sense that it would translate into the Tuscan Raider culture. Just, oh, just thinking about it. I get goosebumps. I don't know if you can pull that music up, but it's just like freaking love that scene. It's powerful. We cut. And that is the end of chapter two. Man, I feel like with most of these flashback scenes, like they just end. They don't really give you an idea or a hint as to what's to come next. Hmm. Obviously, present day, (laughs) we know Boba's got to deal with this new emerging threat with the twins. But I'm curious to see where we see Boba next in the, the next flashback. Yeah, it might be completely separate from the Tuscans, like him saying his goodbyes and moving on. And starting to track down the armor and we'll start to, I mean, he, I think he's going to show up to Jabba's castle and plot to get slave one out to tracked in. He knows that Cobb vamp has the armor because I watched the Mandalorian yesterday of the scenes and he's like, I'm looking for my armor that was uh, from Cobb vamp on Tatooine. It's mine. And I'm pretty sure that that armor has a tracking device and that's how he's finding Din. Well, and at some point he's probably going to come across a dead Fennec Shand. That is right. He's going to find her first, of course. Maybe the 
medical supplies because the Tuscan Raiders obviously aren't going to have that. But maybe he gets all the supplies to help rebuild her abdomen area from that train. Ooh. Perhaps I would assume they would probably have medical supplies. Look at you strategizing. That's pretty cool. I I just thought of that right now. Look at that. Yeah, but that's got to come into play at some point. Yes, maybe that's it. Maybe we're gonna get into this this next phase of the flashbacks, building Phoenix's character because we didn't get a whole lot of her t- this time. Yeah, that's true. And so I think you brought up a really good point that she was visibly shaken when she saw the twins. I was. Yeah. I don't want no part of that. No, thank you. But Boa held his ground and he's got both hands are full with those twins and he needs help. I'm wondering what we'll see next week. Maybe we'll see Boba reaching out to these Trandoshan people. I think he's going to reach out to everybody. I'm going to, the ones who pay tribute, the ones who actually respect him, he's going to go there first. I haven't seen anything on that pit bull looking race that says at the end of the table, what keeps us from all killing you? I haven't seen any interaction with him yet. So I think he's to come possibly next. And then bringing these guys to the table, selling the idea of taking on the huts, building a corporation between them all, taking over this and then expanding this syndicate legitimately possibly yeah but these guys are stuck to their ways they might not follow suit one of them might betray him and it might be the pit bull dude that gives that intel that boba's planning a plot to the jabba's or the hut's demise and betrays him that way Uh, i mean it could go all different kinds of ways but that's kind of where i'm leading to it didn't really give me much to to speculate other than that it kind of just cuts us off right there we still have five episodes so this book of boba fett i hope we get more than one season because i feel like there's so much story you Mm -hmm. can tell but we have five episodes to flesh this whole thing out so i mean lots of time to go lots of different directions but no matter what happens through those five remaining episodes the boys of mandalore will be right here breaking everything down for you guys hmm like you said, phenomenal episode. It was great. Definitely a 10 out of 10. Definitely a step up. Um, hopefully it continues. But I am more, I think we needed the first episode to set the stage. And this is kind of honing in what this is actually going to be about. And that's probably where the criticism lies is because everybody's just super impatient. And they just maybe not have the dying. They just don't see the dynamic of what this episode or these episodes have to offer. And, you know, they're not looking in into it as as far as us possibly. IGN gave it a seven. This one? Yeah. I mean, I don't trust IGN for anything. I used to. I used to as well. I mean, games, but the way he was, the way the guy was reviewing it just sounded like, nope, I don't believe you, bro. Sorry. Try again. One interesting thing that came out a few hours ago that I saw, Disney has confirmed the writer for episode six. So right before the finale, none other than the man, the myth, the legend, Dave Filoni. Mm-hmm. John Fabo wrote this one and I forgot the director. Will you please pull it up? The director of this one because she needs praise.
The director of this is Steph Green. Steph Green. And the writer was John Favreau. Steph Green, you nailed it. She is a boss. She's done a couple of things, uh, work doing directing on a couple of episodes for different shows, which I haven't seen, but I think she did a really good job. Yeah. I hope this isn't the last we see of her in Star Wars. I would love to see her take on many, many different things. Agreed. I just liked it. I it liked was it. Good. I like where it's going. Yeah. So long may it continue. We'll see. We will indeed see. Well, thank you everybody for tuning in, listening to our thoughts, us ramble on here about our love for Boba Fett, our love for Star Wars. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to leave a review. Make sure you review and subscribe to this. So whenever we release new episodes, whether it's during the Book of Boba Fett run or thereafter, you will get the new episodes immediately downloaded to your device wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, my friends, may the Force be with you. <laughs> yes. <laughs>